questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. As we commemorate Veterans Day this week, tonight's special guest knows about blood. As an army officer assigned to special forces in clandestine intelligence operations in the Vietnam War, he shed, quote-unquote, soldiers' blood in an enemy mortar attack on his camp in 1967. Blessed with life after surviving the loss of both legs, he returned to life as a veteran who served his country. Subsequent to experiences in a variety of political, public service, and financial endeavors, he began to acquire a keen interest in the real causes of wars and their attendant casualties throughout history in contrast to the histories written by potentially biased sources. Healing from the emotional issues related to his wounds, he grew in spiritual depth and faith. His extensive and concentrated research over many years motivated him to pen Soldier's Blood and Bloodied Money, a hard-hitting work that pulls no punches and exposes the quote-unquote usual suspects who have profited from wars and derived their bloodied money. His considerable and wide-ranging research has resulted in naming the individuals and institutions throughout history who have fostered and fomented horrendous wars, such as arms merchants, religious leaders, politicians, international bankers, media titans, lawyers, and secret societies. Listen carefully to grasp the political, financial, business, religious, social, and propaganda-based truths leading to wars. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy, MMS, CBD pure hemp oil, Divinia water, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. 1963 West Point graduate, Alan B. Clark, served in Vietnam as a military intelligence officer involved in undercover intelligence operations against Cambodia, assigned to the 5th Special Forces Group, the Green Berets. On June 17, 1967, he was severely wounded in a mortar attack at Dak, the Special Forces Camp in the Central Highlands of South Vietnam, and required 15 months of hospitalization for treatment after amputation of both his legs below his knees. He was awarded the Silver Star for gallantry in action, a Purple Heart, Bronze Star, Air Medal and Combat Infantryman's Badge. He is airborne qualified and is a retired Army Captain. He has written many books, including his autobiography, Wounded Soldier, Healing Warrior. The late Ross Perot wrote the foreword. His new book is titled Soldiers' Blood and Bloodied Money, Wars and Their Ruling Elites. His goal is to bring a spiritual approach for veterans so they can heal from wartime traumas. And we have a more comprehensive bio on our website. His lay ministry to veterans suffering from combat operating stress may be found at his website, combatfaith.com, which is also linked at ours. Today, I'm honored to welcome the Honorable Alan B. Clark. Hello, Mr. Clark, and welcome to Veritas. And on behalf of our audience, thank you for your service. Well, thank you, Mel. I'm honored and privileged to be with you today. It is my honor. May I call you Alan? Of course. Thank you. Well, Alan, you come from a lineage of warriors. Your father fought in the Korean War. He went through the Great Depression and World War II. That great generation. The fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. The title of your latest book is Soldiers, Blood and Bloodied Money Wars and the Ruling Elite. You shed your own soldiers' blood in Vietnam. Would you please recount for our audience the circumstances of your service in the Vietnam War when you were wounded? 
Well, um, I was a West, I'm a West Point graduate, and so I guess I got in the family business with my father being an officer. Also, he was um, um, he went in, on active duty in World War II. Immediately after uh, the my birth, two months later, he was called on active duty in 1942, and uh, he he did not serve overseas in World War II. My father was always a little bit uh, saddened, and I guess. A little embarrassed about that, but he said, I volunteered twice, son, but I just never was called. And I said, well, okay, Dad, don't worry about it. You you, you were there and you were available. You were ready to go. And then uh, he ended up serving in the Army of Occupation in Japan. And um, I met a lot of, saw and met uh, and had a lot of uh, interaction with young West Point officers in the Army post that we were stationed in Japan in 1949 to 52. And I was always impressed by them. So at age eight, I just started having tunnel vision to go to West Point, become an officer. So I studied very hard. I went to a Catholic Jesuit high school, and I went to a, a prep school in New Hampshire, um, Phillips Exeter Academy. And I had an interesting thing happen, Mel, and that was that um, I received my nomination to West Point from a lame duck congressman out of Arkansas, my father's uh, state of residence. My mother kept it in Texas, so dad was very smarty, and we had six opportunities for nomination. So I got my nomination, and the congressman, uh, I told the congressman, uh, Brooks Hayes, chairman of the House Foreign Relations Committee, I don't want the nomination next year because I'm only an 11th grader. He called me on New Christmas Eve, my 11th grade at Exeter Academy. And I said, I don't want the nomination next year. And he said, Alan, I'm out of office next year. I'm filling up all my slots. And he said, uh, why don't you take my nomination and uh, it'll be a principal nomination. If you pass the exams and everything, you'll, you'll be admitted as appointed to the academy. If you don't, then you, you'll have practiced for a year. I said, Congressman, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, it was Christmas Eve, 1958, my 11th grade. So I got admitted to the academy, entered as the youngest man in my class, about 735 cadets. And obviously when I graduated, 504 cadets, I was still the youngest man in my class. I did well academically because I had studied so hard. I fulfilled my lifelong dream. I was married soon after my graduation in 1963. And um, my first wife was really wedded to... Uh, North Dallas and Dallas, Texas, and a wonderful life that she had endured. And uh, I was a general's aide. I was a, a combat engineer, platoon leader, company executive officer. And she told me after about three years when I'd become a, a general's aide to the 2nd Armored Division commanding general, two-star, that she wanted me to get out of the military. I just I couldn't believe it. I said, I don't want to, that's all I ever wanted to do was go to West Point, become an officer. I says, I would prefer that we become civilians. And so, you know, when you, you, you try to preserve your marriage and, uh, I said, okay, I will resign. Um, you know, very half-heartedly, obviously. My heart was not in it. But I transferred to military intelligence, hoping that I could, um, maybe transfer into the foreign area specialty program, Latin America. My mother's Amalia de la Fuente. She was an Hispanic. Her father was from Asturias, Spain, and he had migrated into Mexico and Texas early 1900s. So I thought that maybe I could transfer to that. Even after I did that, she says, no, I still want you out. So um, uh, the assistant division commander wanted me to become his junior, he wanted to become his, his aide-de-camp to go to Korea. And I would have been able to avoid the Vietnam War, which by 65, 66 was on. And I could have uh, come back after my four years was up. We were all extended as regular Army officers and finished my fifth year in the United States, avoided Vietnam. And, you know, Mel, I, I could not do that. I had duty on our country in my heart and my soul. And so I volunteered for Vietnam without telling her. And that created a, a, a magnificent a massive spiritual problem that did not get solved for 25 years when she finally forgave me. And that's another story answers to prayer. But um, so I went to Vietnam and as a, originally as a prisoner of war interrogator, there are no prisoners to interrogate September, August, September 1966 when I went to Nha Trang, which is a French Riviera of uh, South Vietnam. 
So I was on a plane one day with a tactical officer, and I recall his name from West Point, told him I was really bored in my job. And so this Lieutenant Colonel, Army Special Forces, Green Beret, uh, commanding officer in Central Highlands of Vietnam, said, you transferred to Special Forces, which was in the same town, the train, uh, and I will give you a job that you will not be bored in. And I said, well, I guess I'll do that. So I transferred over. I was airborne qualified, hadn't gone to the Special Forces school. So I transferred over. And then about a week, I was at headquarters after about a week, and the I went into the uh, personnel office, uh, S1, and the sergeant said, um, I said, why am I not at my assignment up country, as we call it in Central Highlands? He said, we've changed your assignment. I said, well, that's really great. I said, why don't you all tell me if you've changed my assignment? What is it? He says, uh, we can't talk about it. It's classified. So eventually I found out it was espionage against Cambodia. So uh, I helped set up this um, new, brand new unit called Attachment B-57, Clandestine Operations Against Cambodia. My first assignment was an incredibly interesting assignment where I debriefed a Cambodian officer who eventually was murdered after I left country. It was on the front page of the New York Times after I'd come back from the war and was in graduate school. I front page New York Times, left-hand column, um, in Chin Hai Lam, the officer from Cambodian Army, a defector, had been murdered. And so um, it was one of those wild and crazy things. But anyway, then I trained for three months for two infiltration missions on the border of Cambodia, letting uh, training three and two uh, young Cambodian anti-communists to infiltrate through the jungle into Cambodia. It was unsuccessful, triple canopy jungle, American troops with machetes can barely make it and with, um, you know, combat engineers blowing stuff up. So uh, we did that. And then I was assigned to a place called Dokto Special Forces Camp in the Central Highlands in the spring of 1967. So I was trying to set up agent networks there. It was unsuccessful because I found out later the most heavily bunkered underground installation areas in the entire country was just west of our camp toward the tri-border point of Laos and Cambodia. And... Um, an enemy battalion of North Vietnamese Army regulars came across the border in um, about the second or third week of June 1967. They had their privileged sanctuaries in Cambodia after they came down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And supposedly Cambodia was a neutral country, but Prince Sihanouk let them come in. They were based there. This battalion came over. They ambushed two of our patrols, killed maybe six out of seven American Green Berets. And uh, my commanding officer wanted me out of the camp because I was undercover, clandestine activities, false ID. My name was Alan Copley, United States Army. So I had what's called plausible denial <laughs> uh, if I were captured. The Captain Alan Copley, United States Army, does not exist on the roles of the United States Army. I didn't realize that at the time. I, I had to be a little bit older in, in civilian life to understand the, the total, um, what that meant. So uh, I was up there, and he said I was going to pick you up. I'm going to come up from Saigon, 280 miles away, in an airplane, and pick you up on Saturday morning, June 17, 1967, at 9.30, 10 and a half months into a 12-month tour. And so I was prepared to leave. I mean, um, you know, I was my, my operations was shut down. My, my um, Montagnard spies that I had recruited were not going into the jungle anymore. And um, so I was on the last shift between 4 to 6 on the morning of June 17, 1967. And uh, we always have an American uh, Special Forces person on duty during, during a two-hour shift to kind of walk the perimeter and everything when a mortar attack and rocket attack started from across the river just to the uh, south of our camp. And um, since I was the American awake and alive, uh, most of the people just got into bunkers, you know, and let the barrage uh, go. Uh, I made sure that a radio operator in an underground bunker called up the Air Force to, to come and help us and uh, relieve our camp. And I started grabbing men to put them out on mortar pits um, and yelled out orders, put the flares up on the on the wall, as we called it, toward where the enemy I knew was firing from, and also to put counter-battery fire toward that direction. And all of a sudden, I am on my stomach, uh, around, hits to my left rear, takes my left leg off traumatically, about two inches below my knee. As I turned out later on, my right leg was broken in five places, and they eventually had to have it amputated ten days later. I came very, very close to dying. I don't remember... 
um, male hurting. I, I think my good Lord uh, wanted to save me for the rest of my life and uh, knew that I would be suffering, but I didn't. he didn't want me to die. So I always thank my good Lord that I lived to combat um, uh, combat medic Green Berets, uh, saved my life by treating me immediately. I got morphine quick. I got plasma really quickly. Uh, we had 25 Americans in the camp, nine wounded, two killed. So we took 44% casualties. I was medevaced out and came back to the United States within seven days. And that started 15 months of rehab. So that's kind of my war story in a nutshell. You know, I'm a combat guy. I'm no, you know, uh, fixed bayonets charge type of guy, no infantry officer, intelligence officer that just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time during an attack and did what I guess we're trained to do in the military is to respond. And so I did that and I was rewarded for my, um, with my silver star, a third highest decoration, obviously, uh, got a purple heart. You know, I got two legs off and only one purple heart mail it. I questioned that laughingly through the years. You'd got two, maybe only got one. And, um, so I'm very proud to have been a soldier. I'm proud to have served my country. And uh, there's a lot of questions about how we fought that war, and we can talk about that a little bit. But uh, I did my duty, and I feel good about that. And uh, one of my lifelong efforts has been to try to work with uh, all veterans from all the wars, even back to World War II and Korea, and especially my war, especially the younger veterans here the last couple of decades, try to help them heal from their combat, combat operating stressors. I believe the number, correct me if I'm wrong, but the total is about 58,220, the actual death count. Hindsight is twenty twenty. You fought the war. You did what you thought was right. But after so many decades and knowing, that, I know that you knew the great H. Rose Perot. And so, as you know, he was a fighter. And he tried to bring back some of our brothers who were left behind in Laos and Cambodia, they had their eviction and evasion codes in rice fields. Satellite imagery was available to our government, and we did not bring him back. And I believe this is one of the reasons why he wanted to become president. In retrospect, what are your thoughts on that war? Well, there are several factors here, Mel. And um, if I do a second book, I'm going to cover the the wars of the, the 20th and 21st century uh, for a, another follow-up volume to Soldiers' Blood and Bloodied Money. But uh, one of the things, of course, is that um, there was something called the domino theory. And we believe that if we didn't take a stand uh, in South Vietnam against the communists, that, quote, uh, uh, Cambodia would fall, Laos would fall, Thailand would fall, uh, eventually Indonesia would fall, and the Philippines and so forth, because the communists were on the move. They were using their surrogates, you know, what they call wars of national liberation. Now, I will digress a minute to that agent that uh, was eventually murdered, that I debriefed, that young Cambodian officer. Very interesting, he spoke seven languages Okay, now that's pretty high value guy. He had studied at Patrice Lumumba University in Moscow, which is called the Peace University or something today. But back in the 50s and 60s, and I don't know how long after that, um, Moscow would bring in sharp young people from all over the world, and they would train them to go back and do wars of national liberation, um, which is different from that in the 1980s in Nicaragua and so forth by the Jesuits, which I wrote about in my book. But uh, they would bring them back. And so he was one of those people, and he was obviously probably a double agent, maybe even a triple agent. And there was controversy about that man uh, being murdered by possibly one of our own officers. So the communists were using um, the North Vietnamese to to attack the South and to set up the guerrilla operations. Um, the Russians and the Chinese ended up supplying uh, Vietnam and the communists the Viet Cong in the South, uh, through Haiphong Harbor. An interesting thing I found out from a friend of mine who was a naval officer and flew um, planes in uh, South Vietnam. In 1965, he heard one of our fellow officers, he said, you know, we should have mined Haiphong Harbor, which was just downriver from um uh, Hanoi in 1965. We did not do that until about 19. 
72, maybe not even really mined it then, but seven years later, when we finally shut down the traffic for the Russians and the Chinese, Chinese coming cross country, but the Russians bringing weapons in to the, those bases. So possibly we had a chance to shut that down much earlier and saved tens of thousands of our casualties. So that's one of the issues. I have now studied and realized that um, the uh, uh, Golden Triangle where um, a bunch of former nationalist Chinese uh, soldiers, you know, came in and started producing heroin uh, up there in uh, Thailand and uh, Burma and so forth. Um, that Those drugs started coming through Laos and Cambodia into South Vietnam. And what I found out, and I'll write about in my next book, is that the um, many of the high-ranking politicians and military officers of the South Vietnamese government, they were involved with that trade. Now, I didn't learn that till just a, a couple or three years ago. I didn't know that at the time. Obviously, the briefings did not ever tell us anything about that. I think one of the mistakes the United States military does is not indoctrinate and help us as young people understand why are we there? You know, we just got a glory and honor of the United States of America, patriotic young men and women from all over the country, you know, go off and fight these wars. So you have this combination of communist uh, great powers supporting that war of national liberation. You got the drug trade. There was another factor that I heard you probably, I'm sure you either interviewed or know who John Coleman is. Absolutely. Yeah. I talked to him on the phone a couple times years ago. He sent me his book on Vietnam and he had a theory that a lot of what Vietnam was all about from our originally going into the country was related to, um, oil deposits offshore Vietnam. Now, I have not been able to quantify that there are uh, large productions of oil offshore Vietnam today, but there is production. But uh, I think we were concerned that if the communists took over Southeast Asia, starting with Vietnam, that they would push over into uh, Indonesia and all those uh, heavy oil-producing areas in, um, south, in, the, in the southwest Pacific. So that could have been another factor, but I haven't gotten as much on that factor as I thought I should. You know, um, uh, Douglas MacArthur says, never get in a land war in Asia. He said that, and uh, that was obviously what Korea was about, but uh, we made the effort to go into South Vietnam. So as much as it kind of bothers me um, from the conflict in my own heart, and for those of us that served in Vietnam, Mill, for us to think about what was that war really all about? You know, our 58,000 that died and all the hundreds of thousands uh, that are touched with post-traumatic stress and all the people wounded, all the families hurt because of the deaths and the casualties and so forth. What was that one all about, you know? And so that's a lot of what drove me from my own personal experiences in a war and being bloody in one to do the research that I've done on the book. But, you know, if you, I, I, it is really hard for me to come down categorically undeniably and say, we shouldn't have been in that war um, for, for the reasons that I've just expressed. But, you know, maybe there was another way. And, you know, the bottom line is here we are, North and South Vietnam are together. Uh, they're fairly dynamic. It's a communist country. But who cares? If that's what they want to have, that's what those people have. Um, you know, we're doing trade with them. We have factories there. People are making stuff in Vietnam and selling it to us, you know, obviously just like China does and so forth. It's a real complicated emotional situation for us as veterans. Uh, what was that war all about? Was it worth losing our lives and being maimed and, and hurt emotionally with PTSD? And it's really, really kind of hard to come to grips with it. But, you know, in a larger sense, I realize that it's a ultimate battle between good and evil, Mel. You know, uh, God versus the devil um, and, and God versus uh, Lucifer and Satan. And so I just have accepted that part of spiritual warfare and uh, realized that I was a very small part of that whole effort. That's a long answer to a very short question. A lot of people wonder, after the war with uh, Japan, World War II, the bombing in Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and all of a sudden they become a trading partner. I mean, they're one of our biggest allies in the Far East. And some people can't understand that we fought the war with Vietnam. And all of a sudden, uh, a, decade, a couple of decades ago, they 
become a most favored nation with the United States. There's some shady deals that happen behind the scenes that I'm told that that's why that we granted that status. But isn't it interesting that we fought that war, lost so many lives, both sides lost lives, and they're a most favored nation country? Well, Mel, you know, it's not just the, the, the combatants that suffer. Uh, it's what I call the uh, collateral damage. You know, the civilians that get bombed and killed right. in all of our wars. And, you know, um, I, I went back and kind of um, restudied some of my notes and my research from this book that I've just that I finished last uh fall, because it took me four years to write that book. All the research that I did for the different wars and the usual suspects and the the, the, the culprits that I found out that have gotten us into wars through history. And uh, it just brought tears to my spirit, you know, almost direct tears, to think about everything that we've suffered from time immemorial, just day after day, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, millennium after millennium, that there just never seems to be a stopping of wars. And so you say, well, why? Why do we have all of this? Well, that's what I really came to grips with. People make money off wars. They're not the ones that, that leave their um, plush carpeted boardrooms in the capitals of the world and in the banks and in the uh, politicians' offices and so forth. They send young people like us that get revved up to serve our country for the so-called, and it doesn't always get followed through with national security purposes, to protect the United States. But they make money, Mel, and that's the bottom line. And so you, know, you, go, you go through these different reasons for all the wars. You look at them. What's the real reason we went to that war? What the heck was accomplished? So we go and of course, the Japanese were pushing all the way through um, the Pacific. You know, they were taking over Manchuria. They were taking over uh, the Philippines. You know, they were taking over Southwest Asia. They took over into China at the time. So they were moving all over the world. So, uh, and then once they attacked us at Pearl Harbor, which is another story as to whether we weren't really warned about that and could have stopped it, um, th then we really had to go to war with them. And no question about the Nazis, you know, we had to stop them. And um, uh, it's just one thing after another, just millennium after millennium, but it's the young people and collateral damage that gets hurt. And these other people, they stack up their gold. They stack up their assets. They stack up the money that they make. They don't suffer. You know, they just continue to make more money because arms merchants and bankers, they loan and sell to both sides. You know, they don't worry about it. Since when do you think this has been happening? Some people say that even the Revolutionary War in the United States, some of the bankers were involved in trying to finance both sides, and they seem to be doing this for millennia. Yeah, well, they do. You know, um, the banks, the banksters, as you might call them, um, they really don't care to whom they lend money. I mean, you know, uh, for our American Revolutionary War, uh, we had to borrow money from Holland, and, you know, France helped us a lot, but, of course, France wasn't helping us to help us. They were really, they were enemies of, of Great Britain and uh, England, right. and they had their own little uh, competition uh, worldwide, especially in North America. So they did it for their own interest to, to knock the British out of here, and so they could have their... Um, so they could have their colonies and so forth in Canada and down through the Mississippi River and so forth. But um, it, it has always been there. You know, if you go back and you and you uh, read about the Babylonian Empire, the Sumerian Empire, um, you know, everything in the Middle East that got started, it's just been constant warfare, Mel. It just never stops. I mean, there's always somebody that wants something else that somebody else has or some potentate or some politician or some king or some ruler decides we're going to go after this. We're going to we're going to um, get the gold they have. We're going to get the property. We're going to open up ports. We're going to uh, get trade and so forth. And we're going to do it by force of arms. And so they make more weapons and they arm more people. And, uh, you know, same thing with the Roman Empire. Look at them. They just expanded all over the world over an 800 year period. Um, from when they got started to when they were knocked out by uh, the Visigoths and, and um, the uh, the Hun, you know, 
Attila the Hun finally got knocked back. But think about just the warfare back and forth in Europe. I mean, in religious organizations got into it, you know, the Thirty Year War. I do not believe, Mel, that until the end times prophecy happens, and of course the final conflagration on the, the plain up there north of Megiddo and south of south of Nazareth to the west of um, Galilee, which I've been to, um, that, that until that final thing happens, you know, final battle, final killing that that we have to go to war to preserve and the Lord comes back in his second coming until that time we will continue to fight we will continue to kill each other we will continue to bleed because it is the way of the world Satan got control of the world God gave him power you know the Lord sent Jesus in here to set an example for us to live a good and righteous and holy and and good and upstanding life and that's been the fight to against the forces of evil and the forces of good that Jesus tries to to emulate and, and work through us to win over. Uh, so far, we have not done a very good job of that, even in 2,000 years. We've been at it, and look what happens. Constant fighting still. By the way, who is, or who was, rather, Billy Sol Estes? To some people, he's famous. To others, he's infamous. He's infamous in Texas, okay? Billy Saul Estes was one of these good old boys from West Texas. And uh, he's a double, he is a double um, felon, okay? Now, he has written his own book called Billy Saul Estes, kind of like my story. He self-published it. Uh, Linda and I went down to meet him several years ago. He, he died two or three years ago. But I had bought his autobiography, and uh, he, he wrote a couple things in that book that really got to me, especially. He said LBJ propagated the Vietnam War for personal financial profit. Now, that's another reason as to what's come to my attention because of the, reading his book and talking to him that is that is condemned in my own mind and, and brought to the fore the questioning of the value of our sacrifice in Vietnam. And then second thing that he said in 1965, Lady Bird Johnson owned stock and Bell helicopter. Now, we had thousands of helicopters taken into Vietnam. A lot of them are just in the jungle because they got shot down and so forth and never, um, you know, brought back to the United States and um, restored or anything like that. So those two things really bothered me. And so I read his book, and what I found out was he had been really kind of a, a connection with LBJ for for a long time. And it was almost like LBJ got him special deals and LBJ took a cut, according to Billy Saul Estes, of money that Billy Saul made, uh, either in the book or in the personal uh, conversation with Billy Saul several years ago. He lived in Granbury, Texas. We had a 40-minute um, audience, you might say, with Billy Saul. Um, we went down there, and, and what I found out about it is, um Back when LBJ was president, he got a phone call at 5 a.m. in the morning. He lived in Pecos, Texas. One of his original problems and challenges was being prosecuted and convicted and sent to jail eventually for uh, getting loans on false fertilizer tanks in Pecos, Texas, which is out in West Texas. But he said he gets a call at 5 a.m. one morning. Um, uh, president Johnson is on the phone. He says, Billy Saul, I want you in, at the ranch, you know, which is uh, in, uh, um Fredericksburg, you know, west of uh, Austin, uh, with $500,000 cash today. And Billy Saul calls him, Lyndon, he said, well, Lyndon, you know, it's 5 a.m. in the morning. So LPJ supposedly said to him, blankety blank, Mike, I don't care what time it is. I want you here on the ranch with half a million dollars in cash today. So he did it. So he goes to jail for that and some other, he was a felon for some other reason. Now, a couple of very interesting things that I found out about in his book. Um, number one, he said that um, relative the assassination, that there was a guy that had been connected with LBJ and graduate of University of Texas back in the 50s that had been connected with LBJ it was kind of like a, a special operations guy, you know, undercover, mysterious for LBJ. And he said he was one of the shooters. And what Billy Saul says is this guy was a shooter on the same floor as um, Lee Harvey Oswald uh, on the sixth floor of the school book depository in downtown Dallas and was one of the shooters. Okay, so Billy Saul said that, and I had never heard that story before, but that was in the book. So going back to the meeting, I said, um, 
Billy Saul, the reason I wanted to come and meet you, and we had to track him down because he's kind of he was kind of undercover and anonymous. His daughter uh, owned and ran a um, a um, antique store in uh, Granbury, Texas, which is southwest of Fort Worth, Texas. So that's how I tracked Billy Saul down. I got hold of her on a Saturday morning, Friday afternoon, uh, and Billy Saul called me the next day. Says I, I'm. I always let veterans come and visit with me. So we were there Monday morning, drove down. And so we're talking to him. And I said, what's this deal about LBJ propagating the Vietnam War? Because that really bothered me, Mel, really bothered me badly. And and he kind of looked at me like, are you naive or something? Linda picked up on him. He knew that there was this guy that was a, a man of integrity and professional military officer in his living room down there in Granbury, Texas, questioning something that in his world as a double felon happened all the time, you know? And so as it turns out, LBJ had been supported beginning in 1939, his first congressional race by George and Herman Brown, the, the Brown brothers, infamous Brown brothers of Brown and Root in Houston, Texas. And he indicated that they, uh, that they, you know, they made a lot of money, but you know, it's not necessarily all profit. And they said, oh, they made billions. Well, you don't necessarily make billions, but you have revenue with contracts. And so they built all the major bases, Brown and Root and um, a couple of other consortium they put together. They built the major bases in Vietnam. So they did get a lot of revenue from those, from those things. That was, the, down- that was the Halliburton of the time, right? Uh, let's see. Brown and Root, I think, became eventually was bought by Halliburton. Right. Okay. So they were kind of like merged into Halliburton at the time. You know, of course, that's where former Vice President Cheney, uh, Cheney you know, made a lot of money uh, and was chairman of the board because of all his contacts and so forth. Um, so we kind of covered that. And then, you know, interesting thing about two years ago, I went down and stayed at an Airbnb with my daughter down in Austin. And um, in the building was called the Brown Building. Now, you know, you look at the uh, historical plaque on the building, which has been turned into condos and Airbnb. And it says office here in the like 50s or 60s. Um, Congressman Lyndon Mays Johnson, uh, George and Herman Brown, or Brown and Root, uh, uh, John Connolly, who, of course, was the lawyer that was principally involved with that 1948 landslide Lyndon uh, win in the election in South Texas, where he beat Coke Stevenson here in Texas, you know, and became a senator for the first time. And, you know, other people kind of within that um University of Texas grouping and the, the Central Texas operation that was the, the power base for LBJ that prompted him into um, the Senate, Senate Majority Leader and eventually Vice President because Kennedy needed Texas, of course. So then we asked him about, and then I asked him about um, Lady Bird and I said, don't you have uh, restrictions or, um, you know, you have to announce uh, that you have certain holdings, even for your spouses. Back in 65, you didn't have to do that. So that, I don't know when they finally made people do that. But, you know, this latest, this latest um, Hunter Biden um, uh, computer, you know, that they found. And so uh, this this uh, former naval officer whom I trust, and third-generation military guy, Bubble Tony, yeah. So he announced, and I read and I heard the interview. He says, you know, he asked James Biden one time, the brother to Joe Biden, how are you getting away with this? Uh, all this, these shenanigans and different payoffs is plausible deniability. Okay, that rang a bell with me. Plausible deniability. Obviously, it's not going to be on Joe Biden's tax return. It's going to be uh, on cutouts, you know, and um, all these different things he owns. That it's not going to be on his tax returns. That's how these people operate, man. That's how these politicians and people operate. They they have good. They have trust funds set up. These lawyers set up accounts, and and that's how the doggone thing works. So that's how it w- w- was. That's how it was done recently with these with the supposed uh, charges uh, for the Biden crime family and so forth. So you know that's really bothersome to me. You know we we little people we just continue along. We just uh, go to our churches and do our worship services, believe in the Star Spangled Banner, and believe in the red, white, and blue. Us young men go off and suffer, and these these higher level people they just make their money behind the scenes. There's no integrity. They don't care. They just make their money. They sell their influence and so forth. 
So I guess I'm ranting and raving now, and I, I apologize now. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. Now, going back to the Gulf of Tonkin in 1964, I mean, we've all heard of false flags, and even some people argue, as you mentioned, I've had people here, even the reporter that, that broke the, the news during Pearl Harbor, that the United States was warned for weeks that the Japanese were coming. But some people might say, yes, but we saved more lives by getting to the war. So I'm going to just play the devil's advocate here for a moment. But the Gulf of Tonkin, uh, the Lusitania, some of the, these false flags in history, what's your take on those? Well, um, in my next book, I will write the story up of World War II of a uh, double agent that was like Serbian or somewhere in the Balkans there. And he was originally a, a spy for the Germans, okay? And he uh, really didn't have his heart into the Nazism. So he became a spy for uh, Great Britain also. Um, there was a... Uh, a, an operation where um, there was a carrier that was used in um, the, I guess it was the Adriatic, and there was an attack on a base in Italy, and uh, planes were used to bomb it. So the Germans kind of got the idea that um, they could do the same thing. It could be done the same thing by Japan, uh, and this was in the summer of 1941, before Pearl Harbor. So this, this man, um, who was eventually awarded uh, a medal, by the British government, which indicates he was his loyalties were with the British government. He was sent to the United States to warn the United States that Japan. He was going to be. He was sent by the Germans to Hawaii to kind of scope out Pearl Harbor. You know, so he didn't get to Japan, but he he got to the United States. And he writes in his own autobiography, which I bought a copy of. You know, I I spent three thousand dollars on research books, old books, and so forth for this current book that we're that we've discussed. And um, he went there, and he says he was interviewed by the FBI, and he says he was also met uh, J. Edgar Hoover. And so um, they they kind of quashed it, you know. And then another story I read was that um, J. Edgar Hoover went to see um, the president, FDR, prior to the Pearl Harbor attack. And FDR supposedly and presumably told him, keep quiet, do not tell another person about it, leave it alone about a possible attack by the Japanese on Pearl Harbor. So that was a way to get us into the war. You know, one of those things. Going back to Gulf of Tonkin, I, my second book was called Valor in Vietnam. I have 19 stories in that book about Vietnam, all branches of the military, an army nurse, um, a Department of Defense contractor worked over there. And uh, one of the stories that I heard about just fortuitously was from the son of an officer that was in charge of the original operation set up about 1964, uh, 1962 or 63, called Military Advisory Command Studies and, Oper uh, Studies and Observation Group, Mill. Now, this was a cover operation for um, forays uh, by uh, what's called Norwegian nasty boats that were leaving from Da Nang, a base there, and they uh, South Vietnamese commando naval uh, raiders would go up and steadily started um, these attacks against North Vietnam prior to the Gulf of Tonkin. And eventually that MACV SOG was uh, set up with uh, what they call reconnaissance teams of two Americans and about four to six or whatever of uh, uh, Nungs who were the Chinese that were loyal to us that lived in Vietnam or South Vietnamese and so forth. And they would do reconnaissance missions into uh, Laos to find out what the, was happening on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So they began doing those missions and they kept going further and further north. And eventually, one of those missions really... Um, they were deliberately set up in the summer of uh, 1964 to keep going further and further north and stronger and stronger missions that were cross-beach cross operations. And eventually one of those is what kind of set the, the uh, North Vietnamese off. And, um, you know, there's a lot of speculation about whether uh, an attack of any kind really happened. But um, there were like uh, phantom radar deals and... Um, uh, LBJ 
kind of got in his head, this is the way for me to go to war against North Vietnam, which is good for me two months before the election against this so-called warmonger, um, Goldwater. And so that gave him the option to have a self, which what we call a self-registration in the financial world to uh, take this declaration. It wasn't really ever a declaration of war, you know, just this, this deal that they signed that we started sending our missions into the North. But the MAC Military Advisory Command a Studies and Observation Group missions against the North, uh, the special counter um, clandestine missions were the reason that that um, the, the South, the North Vietnamese went against those, those ships up there. And the, the second attack may not really have ever happened. But LBJ used that as his pretense to start attacking the North. And that started the war. And it was the Gulf of Tonkin operations. So it's one of those false flag deals to make things happen, you know. This is also very important, but anecdotes from Navy officer friend in 1965. You had a friend there. The conversation with Washington Insider about President Kennedy. I mean, we're also in November, and we also remember those who were alive. I was not. What happened that uh, infamous day, November 1963? Well, um, you know, living here in Dallas, um, I've had the opportunity to to be in contact with people that were intimately involved with the assassination one way or the other. Uh, let me go through that, and then I'm going to tell you something about uh, what this um, uh, pilot had a conversation with someone who, whose name I don't know and whose affiliation I won't even uh, go into. I do know what his affiliation was with the government, but I'm not going to go into that. But basically... Um, what he uh, what he found out, and I mentioned before that um, that we had the Haiphong the, the Haiphong Harbor, not not mining it, but there was the story um, when he was a, a pilot that during one of the flights he found out that presidents uh, he heard this from an insider in Washington that um, the presidents usually had mistresses on the side, except for Nixon, which was kind of interesting. This was about the middle seventies or so forth, and then Kennedy had two mistresses on his staff, call him Fiddle and Faddle, and uh, one of them became pregnant, and uh, somebody on his staff whose name I you could probably look up, but I'm not going to say it, uh, married her to uh, get her off the hook, you know, get him off the hook, um, but apparently, I mean, this, this Washington insider told my friend, he says, you know, Kennedy had a full-time person on a presidential staff whose sole purpose was to locate beautiful women in D.C. and invite them to parties at the White House for skinny dipping and to sleep with JFK. Amazing enough, at the time, there were a string of murders of D.C. women at the time. And, um, you know, that, that's another big mystery, which I'd never heard about. And I just heard this story um, a while back here. But um, one of the interesting things that happened, you know, but the, the uh, JFK assassination, there was a doctor that just died a couple years ago that I met here in Dallas. He was in the, his mid-80s. He was in the um, uh, the, the, op- the operating room, the, the emergency room, when Lee Harvey Oswald came in and when President Kennedy came in. He said, look, I saw the I saw this great big wound on the back of Kennedy's head. There's no way that that was an entry bullet. Obviously, a bullet had come from the front. He said, I have theorized that it was a bullet that hit him in, um, in, in, the, in it his front head, uh, and it was, and he had a lot of hair, so it was kind of covered up, but uh, that was the entry level, and then the big, um, you know, exit wound was on the back, and so um, we talked about that, and then there was a police officer that on the day that JFK was murdered, uh, he was uh, a South, he was a police officer, Dallas Police Department, comes up in his squad car, parks there at Dealey Plaza. He gets out of the, his car with a shotgun, and he and several and a couple of other officers went to the back of the school book depository to an open boxcar that was getting ready to take off from these railroad yards right behind the school book depository, and they pulled out about six or seven so-called tramps that have been uh, that had publicity. He says they, their, their shoes were not dusty. Um, they were wearing coats. I mean, like 
you know, jackets. They weren't like vagabonds or homeless or anything. So we brought them back, and I saw a picture in some book of this officer, this police officer whom I got to know, now deceased. So we brought him back to the um, sheriff's department, which at that time in 1963 was catacorner, if you can believe it, to the school book depository. We brought him in, they fingerprinted him, and they released him. The sheriff said, oh, we already have the shooter. I mean, this is an hour after the assassination. The official party line with the establishment in Dallas County was, oh, we already have the the assassin, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald, because he'd been captured down there at the Texas Theater in, in Oak Cliff in Dallas. And he says, I couldn't believe it. He said, we had to release him. So, and he took me to the Grassy Knoll, you know, to that fence up there at the Grassy Knoll with the doctor. And we went there several years ago. He says, Alan, I'm telling you right now, one of the shooters shot behind this fence and got the president from the front. And I've heard several stories that were like, you know, a whole lot of, um, Different stories are like Corsican, Corsican assassins, you know. And then I have another book that I found years ago where a, uh, a former high-level uh, CIA officer was supposedly taped and saying that uh, the CIA had something to do with that. There were all sorts of rabbit trails as to who was involved. You know, the mafia, um, um, the Cubans, you know, um, maybe Russian involvement, whatever. All these people were mad at LBJ. You know, supposedly LBJ, uh, this was November when he was assassinated in 1963. He was supposedly was going to bring troops back from Vietnam uh, by December of 1963. Well, um, obviously, LBJ, when he took over as president, you know, with that day and being sworn in on that plane at Love Field, uh, he began to expand the war, you know, so from, from not only uh, shotgunners, you know, uh, helicopter uh, shotgunners in the 25th Infantry Division in Hawaii going over for three-month tours, but slowly increased the advisory operation. And then summer of 65, the first big units of military uh, units from the United States went over. And when I went there on August 1st, 1966, that was the second year of the buildup. And um, so all of those things began to happen, but under LBJ. And so it kind of ties together. Well, did he have a deal that he cut with Brown and Root and those guys to make money? And so let's build up the country. Let's build those bases up. And, you know, his wife uh, make money off the helicopters being sold, the stock. And so we're, this it all kind of all of a sudden started to come together for me, you know, um, a long way from a 24-year-old Army captain being wounded in Vietnam, and the whole world opens up to me about that conspiracy theory, you know? Speaking of conspiracy theories, I mean, there are so many of them. And by the way, as you know, that's a term that originated during that time to basically make fun of people like us who question reality. That's why I would call it a we're political, re parapolitical researchers. But when it comes to the reasons why Kennedy was assassinated, there are so many of them. The fact that he wanted to get rid of the Federal Reserve, he wanted to print our own currency, and the Bay of Pigs, then we have the early withdrawal from the, the, the Vietnam troops. What do you think, in your opinion, after decades of research, what do you think the main reason, if there was one, why Kennedy was assassinated? Um. I believe that he was not buying into um, all these high-level elitists. I mean, let's face it, he was an elitist. His, his father was an elitist, you know. His whole fan, his father made a lot of money off liquor trade yeah. in the 30s and so forth. And he was an elitist, for crying out loud. He was a, a Roman Catholic that went to Catholic boys' schools. He never was a, apparently a very good student. But I talked to an officer one time, retired Army Lieutenant General. He says, look, I, I remember being in briefings in the 50s with Senator Kennedy. That guy was smart. He, he knew the questions to ask. And so he had a handle on what the heck was going on. And I think that he probably had an, a desire to stop warfare and to maybe have a rapprochement uh, during his administration with the Russians and to stop all this stuff. That may be, in my opinion, the major reason he was taken out, because it ties in with conspiracies. It ties in with people making money. It ties in with constant warfare and, you know, keeping the world in a turmoil, getting people killed, making money, continuing to lend money, continuing to have the military 
military-industrial complex, uh, make money, you know, build newer and bigger weapons. He could wipe out anybody else. I think the major reason was that he really wanted to have apparently a rapport built with Soviet Union. And hey, let's stop this. Let's stop this. You know, and apparently the um, ambassador to Russia that was Dobrynin, maybe that was the ambassador at that time in Washington D.C. Apparently he was the cutout uh, going through uh, Robert Kennedy, his brother, to bring stuff to him. You know, so that was the cutout he was using. Uh, that's just something I have a, a recollection in my mind about. But that's probably the bottom line. Quick parenthesis, because I know you don't discuss this, but I'm just curious. Kennedy was the protege of James Forrestal, the first Secretary of Defense. Do you know anything about him and the mysterious reasons on his death? Well, you know, there's a, a significant controversy relative to his you know, climbing out of the top story of that Bethesda hospital and committing suicide. And there's just so many of these things all the time. You know, uh, Joe McCarthy had a mysterious death for some reason at that same Bethesda hospital. And, you know, people were concerned that Trump went to that hospital. You know, it's really called Walter Reed, and but it's really at the Bethesda Naval Hospital right. Grand. As the uh, uh, Maryland, and um, you know, I, I, will, I have some information on that, but uh, it's not—it's not something that I've studied for this latest book. But I will uh, probably cover that in in my next book relative to Forrestal, uh, kind of being on top of some of these things. And you know, people have got to be shut up. You know, you constantly hear about these journalists that are on to stuff. You know, they're on to um, uh, some political figure and they just disappear. You know, um, there are all sorts of ways to make people appear to have committed suicide, uh, either through a special shot that we've heard controversies about and um, weapons being used, you know, with, with clean fingerprints, except for the fingerprints of the person that supposedly shot themselves. I mean, it's a cold, cruel work world out there, Mel, and it has been going on for millennia as far as getting rid of people that, that go after the system, go after the conspiracies, go after the bad guys that are going to lose money if the truth comes out. And we can talk about some current political figures when and the truth comes out about them, uh, as it started to, they've disappeared. You know, these deaths and killings in Arkansas, a lot of us have read a lot about that. Oh, are you, uh, this, are you talking about Mina and, and the rest of it? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, all of that. You know, let's face it, Mina was a, a transshipment base for drugs sure. out of Central America for crying out loud. One of the things that bothers me, you know, I write about the what I call the sacred cows, and I'm real careful about CIA, okay? You know, I've always had this glorified image of our intelligence agencies, you know, FBI and CIA and everything. And unfortunately, with the things that have happened in the last four years, Mel, my glorified image of the uh, people in the intelligence, some of the rogue elements in the intelligence community and some associated with the deep state have been totally demolished. Now, I believe that the majority of the FBI people and the majority of the people in, in the CIA are good, solid, patriotic people They want to protect the United States and want to stop criminal activity. But the rogue elements have gotten in charge. One of the things that I've written about in my book is how these uh, the deep state elements like CFR, they groom people to get in positions of power so they can control events. They can control the, the amount of information that's let out. And uh, I, I, I'm firmly convinced of that. You know, I can only talk about these things to certain people. So here I am talking on a, a, an international to an international audience that I, I think you enjoy. Uh, but these are these are on my mind. And some of my friends may go as a conspiracy theorist Clark. I don't care anymore. I'm 78. I got nothing to lose. You know, it's interesting because a, a few days ago I aired a classic show regarding the effects on the media, on people and our political you know, and elections and how now it's, it used to be hundreds of thousands of dollars for elections. Now it's billions of dollars. When this show airs, the week of Veterans Day, I don't know where our election might be. Something tells me it might be contested. There will be lawyers. There may be, oh, God forbid, there may be riots. And maybe I don't want to even go there and say civil war. But it is a powder keg right now in the United States, unfortunately. I was going to 
release another classic show regarding Operation Gladio. And I decided against it because I'm thinking, no, 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 let's not just inf- inflame things anymore. But now I regret not having done it because this is exactly what we have and what you said. The rogue elements are always left behind. They're the ones who really control things. And they're the ones that are trying to exert a coup d'etat right now. Why don't I take your answer on the other side because we have to break. Why don't you tell us how can people buy the new book, Soldiers, Blood and Bloody Money, and all your other books and learn more about your work, Alan? All three are on Amazon. My my third book is self-published. It's so controversial, the Soldiers' Blood book, so controversial, sociopolitical and everything that I could not get a publisher to publish it, okay? So, um, but people can buy that and, you know, uh, when you self-publish, you don't have marketing operations behind you. You just got to have word of mouth and hopefully some of your people will buy the book because I've whetted their appetite relative to the things that I talk about and write about. Thank you. My pleasure. It's an honor to have the Honorable Ellen B. Clark here and much more when we come back part two because one of the things I, I really enjoyed about your book is that it's not only about your experience but also the history. History of wars, history of the United States And most importantly, and we'll discuss this when we come back to because there's a lot of solutions, you really focus also on how to really help the troops cope. As everybody knows, troops are committing suicide at an alarming rate, and that doesn't seem to stop. And I want people to hear your words when we come back. This is Mel Hostel, Rick, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest, and all of our material, proceed to the member section, or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting, Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS. CBD pure hemp oil, Divinia water, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe, to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.